In today's episode, I was kindly invited by Brooklyn Law School professor Jody Balsam to talk about my book Dundeal and speak about my experiences of working in the football and wider sports sector. I'm Jody Balsam. This is Daniel G. Um, you know, I want to start off by saying, with telling a little story about how Daniel and I met. Um, so. This, to me, is a, an object lesson for lawyers and people in business um, in any setting. Uh, I was in London uh, on a pleasure trip. I was there to see the Yankees-Red Sox game last June. Uh, and I don't know if anybody paid any attention to that. Um, and uh, decided I would just sort of call around to London sports lawyers I knew of, heard of, to see if they would just want to sit down with me and have a cup of coffee so I could learn something about their career and their practice. And Daniel was one of those lawyers and was incredibly generous to spend some time with me. And now he's visiting me in New York City and is generously given his time to talk to all of you. Uh, so I just take away from that. Pick up the phone. Reach out to people. Uh, you'll find, especially in the um, very close-knit uh, community of sports and entertainment lawyers that they're really generous uh, with their time. And if I may say one other thing as well, which is the backstory to the backstory, which is um, it was probably 18 months or so ago now that you wrote a fantastic piece in the Law and Sport um, journal, the online journal that I read about um, agency and US sport. And because a lot of my practice is um, player agency in the UK market, it was really fascinating to see the differences. So after I read the article, I reached out to Jody and said, wow, fantastic article. Have you ever got the chance to come over to the UK? Or if you want to quick chat on the phone, I'd be really interested to pick your brain. So as much as Jody's like, oh, I came to London to pick Daniel's brain, I was picking her brains, to be fair. <laughs> and, and, and speaking of um, brain picking, I just want to hold up the book for a second. Everyone take a look at it. This, this is, is the free publicity this, side of it. This is the Bible. So let me tell you that that I have a, a wide range of acquaintance in sports and entertainment that have nothing to do with law. Um, and I was uh, socializing with friends. True, this is a true story. This is last weekend. I was socializing with friends who uh, came up to my country house over the weekend. And the reading that he brought along was this book. So he's a music industry executive. He happens to be a sports fan. Um, and he brought along this book and said, this is a great book. You really should read it. I looked at it. I'm like, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> well, because you're surprised it's a good book. <laughs> no, because I, like, what a small world incident is this that I should be hanging out in my, my vacation home with somebody who brought that book along and not planned at all. So that is how interesting, accessible, readable this book is. If you have any interest in European football, and I'm going to use the word football, even though Americans have claimed it in a different context. I'm going to use the word football to mean soccer in this conversation. This is the book to read if you want to know a little bit more about how that business operates. But um, and, and by the way, Daniel is very generously donating a copy of this book to the library, so you'll be able to take it out, although it's worth owning, let me tell you. It's not that expensive on Amazon. Um, so. Let's start, though, with a couple of introductory questions. Um, what does your typical day as a sports lawyer look like at Sheridan's London? Um, you get up in the morning, you get to the office, or maybe not. What, what happens next? Yeah. Um, firstly, thanks very much for inviting me. I sort of half invited myself, is the truth. <laughs> <laughs> um, and thanks, everyone, for coming along. It's great that so many people want to um, hear about how stuff works in the UK, especially on football stuff. So. 
Um, what I will try and do as well in the question and the answers is just try and tell stories because I think that's always a bit more interesting than just basic monotonous law, which you are going to have, which you are already reading on a daily basis. So, you know, um, I tend to, I never used to be this this way is the truth, but I tend to actually get in the office pretty early. So there's a team of about eight of us now. Um, the quieter time is probably between about 7.30 and about nine o'clock in the morning. Now the, the lawyer 15 years ago would be like, 7.30 in the office, ready to go, not a chance. <laughs> um, the difference now is that I have two girls under six who wake me up pretty early in the morning anyway. Um, but once I'm in the office, I have about two hours of, to myself is the truth to be able to actually get things done before what really ends up happening is I become quite reactive to things in the day. If it's emails, if it's phone calls, if it's WhatsApp messages, if it's meetings, if it's things I know I need to do for that particular day. But the, the primary basis of my practice now is, it's, and it sounds pretty glamorous because it is, but actually it's actually pretty tough at the same time, is working with football players and football agents in the UK. And that tends to be around particular periods of the year when I'm when the transfer window is going on. We can talk about the transfer window, I guess, at some point where players are moving for multi-million pound, multi-million pound deals. They're signing multi-million pound employment contracts. Um, the the reactive side of my business a lot of the time also is I guess what you'd call reputation management and compliance, which is the very unsexy way of saying something's going in the press and we don't want it to be in the press, or someone said something on Twitter or Insta or TikTok or um, other types of platforms that have caused problems. Um, it can also be in relation to any type of brand deal or commercial deal. So in, in the UK, usually the biggest type of brand deal that the players and athletes will do are boot deals with Adi or Puma or Nike or Under Armour, whoever else. Boot means be. sneaker. Sneaker. <laughs> Cleat. Cleat. Um, and, and after that, then a lot of my time as well is actually focused on, um, it sounds strange, me being a lawyer, is actually... Um, delegating work away from myself to the rest of the team, which is an art that I'm still getting better at because ultimately I'm a sports lawyer, I'm a football lawyer. I came into the practice to do football work. I want to do the work selfishly myself. But the truth is, is that my time has to be split between lots of different things. Most of it now, it sounds again strange to say, I am a glorified salesman. That's what I think, and that's one of the things we can talk about as well, which is, you know, I come into law to do law, but actually I am a middle management a salesman at some, to some degree, and that is quite a strange thing for me to say, but ultimately that is what I need to be able to do in order to make sure that the rest of my team have good work to do and we can stay profitable. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the business and law of European football, but I want to get a sense of our audience and your familiarity with it. So um, who here follows the English Premier League? Oh, nice. Well, that makes sense So, who's in the room. Who follows any form of international football, outside, even outside of EPL, right? Um, and uh, who, fo who follows Major League Soccer here in the United States? <laughs> yeah, interesting, interesting view. I am a season ticket holder to NYCFC, just saying. I'm probably like the first person you've ever met who can say that. But anyway, um, okay, so, so folks have a little bit of a sense of how that sport operates differently from professional leagues in the United States. But I thought it would be helpful to talk about a few of the differences that are most relevant to the practicing lawyer. And, and I had a couple in mind, uh, especially the fact that professional athletes in international football 
are not unionized, and also that professional teams in international football are subject to a huge degree of uncertainty because of promotion and relegation. So can you talk about those two aspects of international football? Before I do, um, me being a Liverpool fan in the EPL, are there any Man United fans in the room? <laughs> so you know where the door is. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair weather, right? You probably just started watching EPL football when they were successful, right? It's not like you, and, and so that's the team you root for. At least that's what I say as an Arsenal fan. Sorry. Yeah, no, um, so the, 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 the second element's the interesting one, actually, because you know relegation is something that is... Um, the R word in America for American owners or non-UK owners. It takes a while for people to understand. So there's a story um, from a few years back now when a um, uh, an ownership group in India were looking to take over a, an EPL club at the time. And I mean, th this is true, although I don't believe it sometimes, um, that um, they were asked when they bought the club what relegation meant. And relegation, just very briefly, is when um, you finish in the top, uh, bottom three positions of um, the, the top league and in the lower leagues, you get relegated, you get actually demoted to the league below. And the reason why that's very important is because the broadcasting revenues and the commercial revenues when you're in the top division, the EPL, are, are huge. So just to give you an idea, um, Manchester City for winning the league last year earned over £160 million pounds from winning the league the bottom place team who are relegated still earns 97 million pounds so there is significant monies in being in the the epl in the first place so it would be as if the milwaukee brewers were told i'm sorry you're so bad you have to now go play triple a baseball you can't share in mlb's uh revenues or exposure and you know in my experience of working with um club owners that are buying um, EPL and Championship Club, which is the league below, um, the major risk factor for purchasing a club is the R word, is the relegation word, um, because you can't have that certainty of revenue. You can't have that certainty when you are then negotiating with players to sign long-term employment contracts, because usually you will try and relegation-proof those by putting a clause in which says, if we get relegated, your, your pay is being reduced by 30 to 50%. And a lot of those players will say, well, no, I'm not, not signing for you because that's the basis of the negotiation. But, but can't they, if they have the leverage, insist on a, um, a, a reciprocal provision that says if we're relegated, you, you release me and nobody has to pay a transfer fee? Uh, you, you know more than me. Um, no, so the truth there is that what would, what would tend to happen is if I was in that negotiation and um, there was a clause which said, or there was a mooted clause, which is relegation reduction clause, I would then, the, the flip side would be, you probably wouldn't be able to get away from a free transfer, but you would then have a release fee for a preordained amount, which would be lower than that player's tra market transfer value. So just um, one other aspect of relegation if for folks who aren't familiar is that it's paired with promotion. So the bottom three teams are relegated, but in the multi-tiered uh, English football scene, so there are five leagues? Yeah, four, four, four main ones. Division, right. So those who rise to the top of the lower leagues can get promoted to the Premier League. Um, what is the likelihood that anyone who's ever promoted actually gains a real foothold in 
the Premier League and stays for the long term to really benefit from the richer revenues? Yes. Two things there. The first is, um, so some statistical analysis was done on um, promoted clubs to the EPL who then were subsequently re-relegated in subsequent seasons. And that, that instance is very high. So um, it is very difficult to when you are an aspiring or aspirational team to actually stay once you've actually reached the Holy Grail for a number of different reasons. Usually it's because you'll try and spend a decent amount of money. It's like the money ball theory to a degree, which is there's a huge correlation between usually money spent on uh, employment wages and where you finish in the league. It tends to be. Um, Ultimately, the case with relegation and promotion um, is that, at least in the medium term, you have probably a group of six to eight clubs in the EPL who, unless something disastrous happens, are not going to be relegated from the league. Ever. And every year you have 12 or so which have the possibility of being relegated in the same way. You know, if you're looking um, as a, to owning a club in the lower divisions to try and get up into the, the EPL, there's some amazing stats out there, which is, you know, um, it is very, not only is it very difficult to get into the EPL, but you have to spend a lot of money getting there. And the trend over the last five years for losses in the league below the, the EPL, the championship, has gone from around £150 million per season cumulative to over £700 million cumulative. And this is another thing we can talk about, which is cost control, which is a big thing in um, the EPL and the championship at the moment. But the championship, i.e. the division below, is an accumulate-to-speculate um, uh, league, which is it's great riches to be had. You've got to spend your way to get out of that league. Once you're there, it's extremely difficult to stay there. So you are in a bit of a, um, a I say, virtuous circle, but it's actually the exact opposite. It's a very difficult circle right. to be able to continue to, to feed. So and let's talk about the um, player side of the picture for a minute, because... Um, what we are familiar with here in the United States in most of the professional leagues is um, unionized players who negotiate collectively for uh, a method of sharing overall league revenues. There are limited opportunities to move among teams highly regulated by the collective bargaining agreement. In comparison, international football just strikes me as a free-for-all. And the whole process of transferring from one team to another and um, the way it is uh, dictated by certain norms which seem to undercut players' autonomy um, is it's just fascinating to me. Could you tell us a little bit more about how mo player mobility works in international yeah. football? Where to start is, the, is always the question. I mean, the, the, the significant difference is, is that in the UK and across Europe and a number of non-European leagues, um, it is possible for a player to force a move to another club whilst he is under a long-term contract. It is also the opposite, which is true, where clubs can effectively force a player who is under a long-term contract to leave by imposing potential sporting sanctions, which is if you don't want to move, we're going to play, we're not going to play you, you're not going to earn enough money, and therefore you're going to be frozen out. Does anyone ever complain about the equipment as a basis for moving? Antonio Brown, anybody? Well, headgear is not headgear. the same. Headgear, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the way that in a similar way that the US market works in terms of agents is almost uh, amplified in the UK and Europe. So the difference is transfer fees really, which is relatively unheard of in um, 
outside European and some of South American soccer football, but is very, very common here. So, you know, we had transfers over the summer where there was a player called Harry Maguire, who's a centre back for, who was a centre back for Leicester, who three years ago moved for less than, I think it was 20 million pounds from a, a local team called Hull to Leicester. Then subsequently, two years on, has moved to Manchester United, who used to be very good, but aren't that great anymore, um, <laughs> for over 80 million pounds. Now, the, the reason I say that is that because effectively, what contractually what is happening is both parties are consent, consensually agreeing to unit, not unite, to terminate um, an employment contract on a certain term, and that term is effectively the amount that that termination cost is due, which is the, the transfer fee. Now, um, ultimately, then what tends to happen as well is whilst some clubs aren't necessarily profitable in particular leagues, a lot of very switched on owners using lots of different met matrices and metrics and data will actually think about buying clubs, not because of the capital appreciation that they can actually have for the club if they manage to get up into higher leagues, but actually having a very good youth and transfer policy and actually owning a club effectively to speculate on, on future players. transfer yep. fees. And there are a lot of clubs that have done that extremely well over the years. Tottenham Hotspur being one. Liverpool, my team, actually doing very well over two particular transfers lately, which meant they've been able to reinvest. So the anomaly is very much transfer fees, which is a strange phenomenon outside of the US, I guess, but is very much par for the course across European and other international leagues. So I want to switch gears here because I know a large part of what you do um, is broadcasting-related uh, um, counseling and deals. And um, in your book, Done Deal, you mention how uh, you, you talk about the proliferation of media streams and uh, how that's going to affect the broadcast value in the future. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, I actually see the U.S. usually about two to four years ahead in most things, especially sports related. And we've definitely seen that on the US side with a number of the, the large practices, MLB being one, I think effectively going OTT over three or four years ago over the top, I mean, in terms of internet enabled platforms and then subscribers being able to subscribe to a quality product free of latency, um, not worrying about pirated or Reddit links or feeds and then there being potential legal issues as a result of that. And what has tended to happen just very briefly by way of structure in the UK market is there are two very big um, pay TV um, uh, platforms, uh, usually through um, tends to be not OTT, but through satellite decoders, basically, to a degree, although it's now going OTT. One is called Sky and the other is called BT, British Telecom. Um, Sky has been the incumbent since 1992, more or less um, having all EPL rights on an alive exclusive basis. So if you want to watch EPL matches in the UK, you had to subscribe to Sky. Then three, so, uh, three cycles ago, British Telecom, which was historically um, the um, privatized national telecoms um, provider, who are the number one broadband provider, was uh, entered the space primarily because uh, when Sky have this pay TV offering, they're also bundled in broadband with it for free. 
And what happened is BT saw that this broadband provision, they were churning a lot of customers over to Sky. So they needed effectively to have a reciprocal product that they could effectively say, well, we can have this quad play offering, which is pay TV, broadband, phone line, mobile, etc. Fast forward a little bit, you have this competition between BT and Sky in the UK at least um, for live and exclusive rights. More recently, Amazon has come in, Amazon Prime has actually bought a particular package as well in the UK market. So for the first time, there's actually three, you have to subscribe to three separate providers in order to watch a comprehensive set of fixtures in the UK, which is, in my mind, and from an antitrust and competition perspective, I don't know how the competition regulators can see that as um, enhancing consumer welfare, but that's, again, for another day. one of the really interesting things that I have said for probably, I, I say interesting, I can't really say it's interesting that I've said, but um, one of the things that I think is coming um, is the a Premier League-owned platform channel. I don't think it will happen in the UK soon because mm. you don't kill the goose that lays the golden egg. Although, although the leagues here have managed to develop their own channels very successfully without... Um, Cannibalizing, can, yeah, yeah, to a degree. I mean, I, I think ultimately... Um, and this is the thing I would I don't want to buy my I don't want my Sky subscription. I only pay 60 pounds a month and broadband and all the other things to watch two games of EPL a week. Right. So if I didn't have if I, I if even if they charge me half of that 30 pounds a month to be able to have um, an OTT platform that enables me to watch all the games then Sky and BT's business model goes out the window and then suddenly you're offering a direct to consumer offering, which is very different than going through the broadcaster and guaranteeing a certain amount of money but the point is is that that amount of money is huge so sky and bt paid over four billion pounds over three years just for those rights and um internationally the international broadcasters um, bid over that actually four and a half billion so um the the market for live epl rights across the world being over nine billion pounds over three years is pretty substantial yeah, if you, I wonder if you add up all of the EPL distribution deals on an annual basis, is it more than the NFL gets? The NFL so the NFL's right. number is roughly seven to eight billion dollars a year. It's not near that yet. So that's the global number. Eight, nine is the global three-year number. So we're nowhere near, not, nowhere near that just but, yet. But I see it coming, at least based on my circle of acquaintance who is now getting up at 7.30 in the morning on Saturdays to watch EPL games. Can we do anything about that? Can't you guys play in the middle of the night so we could watch them at a reasonable time? Well, you joke about that. It's, it's In the Spanish league, in La Liga, they've actually had a certain kickoff time specifically for Asian markets, for example. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and the truth is, is that I don't know if it's the same for NFL or NBA or um, other particular leagues, but in the UK now, because of a really ridiculous rule, I think we'll talk about that in just one second. The, the 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 weekend of matches tends to be so spread out now across lots of different times. So traditionally, when I was growing up in the eighties, you know, almost every game on a Saturday kicked off at three p.m. on a Saturday afternoon. That was it. The traditional landscape was that. If I could compare and contrast that to now, what we have is over the weekend, we have a 7 p.m. Friday game. We have a 12.30 Saturday game. These are all the televised games. We have a 5.30 Saturday game. We sometimes have a 7 or 8 o'clock Saturday game. We sometimes have a 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock Sunday game. And we sometimes have a 7 o'clock Monday game. And that is all because, you know, if you've if you've got this property, i.e. that the broadcasters have, they don't want all the games being shown at the same time. They need that those eyeballs across a whole range and a whole weekend in order to maximize everything they need to maximize. 
Well, well, that's why they need their own network, right? EPL uh, Red Zone, right? Don't we need an EPL Red Zone? Uh, that's a, an NFL uh, program, NFL network program. Um, so, so technology is clearly changing um, the sports industry. And I wonder if, in your experience, um, the uh, wearable technology developments are having an impact yet. And, I, and you know what I'm talking about, uh, where, where you can um, biometrically, uh, you can collect biometric data from players through um, advanced means of accessing their vital signs, um, like ingestibles even, and, and sensors. It's the new horizon without question in my mind what loads of things are. But so usually, and it's I know it's across US sport majorly, but in the past three or four years, you more or less see um, rugby players, cricket players, and footballers specifically wearing basically the GPS sports bras underneath all of their tops where they have the um, a device in between their shoulder blades, it tends to be, because that's the place that they, it sits. And um, it's more or less to measure lots of different data points. For rugby, it can be load and impact. For football, one of the major, really interesting um, stats is um, particular types of sprint speeds over short distances. Um, the the imp And I know in Aussie rules football, for example, you can measure heartbeats. So what they've actually had, which I... I wouldn't be too keen on is the truth is when they're taking certain kicks, the kicker is on screen, it tells you how fast their heart is beating um, to see how well they are coping with the particular situation, which is crazy. And, and are they integrating that with the betting line data? Well, why not? <laughs> you joke. I completely, I'm, I'm not, no, I'm not, not joking. joking. <laughs> no. So the, um, the truth is now is that especially what happened a couple of years ago in uh, UEFA competitions, which is the European competition, and in the EPL as well, they actually have real-time live data streamed straight to the iPad at the side of the bench in order to work out whether this player has done X amount of sprints, which means his capacity and stamina has decreased by 33%, or this player is injured or hasn't been playing to his level based on 17 other comparables of previous games, et cetera, et cetera. So as well as using, you know, coaches and data teams using their eyes to be able to work out particular things on the pitch, mm -hmm. they're very much using data in lots of different ways. And the other interesting element, just very briefly as well, mm -hmm. is when transfers are happening. So if, for example, you've got three or a club has three or four years worth of training and match data, there is a real question mark now over whether when a transfer is happening, the buying club can ask for that data in order to use it for certain particular reasons. Has he had injuries? How has um, uh, he been playing in particular the games? How has his training load been over a particular period of time? How many days has he missed, et cetera, et cetera. And there's con real big consent issues there is one element because what happens if the player says, no, you can't have my data because it might show things that I don't want it to potentially see. Um, the second thing might actually be that... Um, the two different clubs might have different data providers and that data might not be as interoperable as it otherwise would be. And therefore, does that cause problems to be able to use across? So there's two big providers, Catapult and Stats are the main two, but I'm positive that their data doesn't interoperate pretty nicely for the exact reason that they want to retain that proprietary information. So in the United States, the issue of wearable technology and the effect on players' careers uh, is probably going to be resolved through collective bargaining in all the major professional leagues. Um, the uh, players' unions are taking a pretty hard line that when you get to the skin and below, that is a um, that is property owned by the player, right? Not by the club. 
and that they need permission and con consent and players should be um, benefiting to the extent it results in new revenue streams. But again, you know, to use probably an inapt metaphor, international football just strikes me as the Wild West, right? Who, how is this going to be regulated? Are the governments getting involved? Are the football organizations getting involved? GDPR is probably the answer. So data protection regulations, which might be an issue for England if we're UK, if we're no longer in the EU with Brexit related things. Don't get me started on Brexit. <laughs> that uh, was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> Your slippery slope when you start there um, is, yeah, we, we, we have done some advice on this now and mm -hmm. it will only grow because of all of those things. So the question is, who owns that data? Now, there's a query about a whole range of operators in that space. Is it the actual technology provider that owns that data or is there, or are they only providing a license for the club to actually then retain that data? Query whether then the club retains that data pre, post, or otherwise, I can't read pre, current and, and, and post, simply because they are their employee during a particular period of time, and then query whether actually all of that is invalid because the player hasn't necessarily given their correct opt-in consent to be able to provide that data, not knowing what that data is going to be used for, even post that employee being employed at that club. So, um yeah, we're probably not going to solve that problem today. So let's move on to the bigger problem, um, which we probably also won't solve, which is Brexit. And how is Brexit going to affect? I mean, there are a lot of industries that will be affected by Brexit, but we're here to discuss sports. So how is it going to affect uh, international soccer? Just move on. <laughs> the, uh, so as you can probably tell from my, um, my sighing, I am very much a Remainer or Ramona, as I'm called quite a lot. <laughs> Um, I'm an EU competition lawyer at heart. That's where I started off at Jones Day and then at Phil Fisher. So I am, uh, I feel more um, sometimes akin to my European colleagues rather than my British ones is, um, is the truth. That's a different story. Um, two things that will impact quite considerably. Um, they tend to be around free movement. So in the EU, the incredible benefit of the European Union is the ability for a European citizen to be able to work in any EU member state. So you can go with your EU, whichever national passport, to another country and start working anywhere without any documentation more required than that. Post-Brexit, if the idea of Brexit is that regardless of its no deal or deal, we won't be, UK won't be in the European Union anymore, then there, and free movement comes to an end, the, the, the default position will be that any non-UK workers or players will require a type of work permit to be able to play in the UK. That's the default position. Um, what that means in practice is I, I don't know. It is also the truth because just as we said, sport isn't the most important. My experience from the Home Office, which is the government agency that um, more or less puts together all the different criteria for foreigners working in the UK, is this isn't even number 50 on the list, never mind anything else. There are a lot more significant industries that are um, having more, much more considerable um, uh, issues than sport and football in that. 
Um, but the ultimate issue will be, as at the moment, you know, we do quite a lot of immigration advice for non-EU workers, like a South American, for example, coming into the UK. There are set criteria. So i.e. he has to play or she has to play a certain number of national team games or has to be at the highest level to, in order for a, a huge transfer fee to be paid and a, a big salary to be paid, i.e. to show that they are effectively of such talented nature that we couldn't, that team couldn't get it from anywhere else in the world. So those criteria as a default will probably apply to non -UK, anyone non-UK in the, in the short term should we leave, which in turn then from a transfer fee perspective makes UK players extremely valuable. So there are all of these crazy things going on at the moment in the UK where we don't know when, if we're leaving the UK, leaving the UK, leaving the EU on the 31st and Halloween would be a lovely Halloween present for everybody, um, which would mean then for the January transfer window, which is one of the registration periods where players can move, whether that would actually be the first period where it would become very difficult for EU players to move to the UK. Now, sorry to go on about this a tiny no, bit more because yeah, we've given do. quite a lot of advice on it, is what no one seems to understand is one of the main reasons for Brexit, um, which um, I disagree with, is we need to stem immigration. It's not a UK problem, I know. Um, it's very much sort of, I think, Trump and Boris on either side of the Atlantic are, um, are having quite a lot of fireside chats on this right now. But um, one of the things post-Brexit that the government has already implemented to put in place when Brexit happens is what's called temporary leave to remain. And what that effectively means is regardless of if you're an EU citizen, if you're an EU citizen, you automatically are enabled to come into the UK and work for three years as a default. So for everybody saying Brexit will be brilliant because actually we need to stop all these damn immigrants coming in, working, paying taxes, increasing our economy's value and for the services being provided, they actually think that what will end up happening is all of the jobs that no one else wants to do, us plucky Brits will end up doing. The truth is, is that all of these foreigners still will be able to come into the country and still work, which almost defeats one of the big purposes of why people are voting for Brexit in the first place. But there we go. Well, so I'm, I'm going to open up the floor for questions in a minute, but, but I had one more question um, about uh, the life of a, an agent or intermediary, as you call it in international football, um, which is, okay, you're working really hard, but it's really exciting. Um, how's the uh, financial side of the, of the opportunity? So here, here in the U.S., um, player agents in the major professional sports are actually pretty heavily regulated by player unions. And there are a lot of obstacles to even becoming a certified player agent who is allowed to represent one of our professional athletes in the major team sports. And then the union further regulates how much compensation they can earn. Um, it's gotten to the point where in uh, American football, at least, agents are complaining that you can no longer make a living unless you are one of the top agents in a conglomerate agency. Um, is, how's the opportunity look in, in the UK? I mean, we've gone back to our very my, my very first um, interaction with you, which is basically on, on the, the, the article that you read, because I was like, whoa, this is so different yep. to the UK setup. And the, tr the, the, the truth is, is that in the UK and across the world, because of the way that FIFA, which is the world football governing body, what they did about three years ago, is they more or less said, we are deregulating the way that we regulate agents across the world. So we are putting uh, together some minimum standards, which to put 
say the word minimum would be an understatement. And all effectively agents need to do is sign um, a declaration of good character, which basically means as long as you haven't been to jail or been insolvent, you can become an agent. And what had happened pre-2015 as well was that all agents had to, had to uh, pass an agent's exam, an intermediary exam. And the pass rate for that was actually only about 20%. So post skip foot back now to 2015 onwards, every man and his dog in the UK has become an agent, maybe because their cousin, uncle, brother, sister, stepsister, whoever it might be, might be a footballer, and they think they can potentially negotiate a multi-million pound deal, which uh, is difficult for the best agents in the world, never mind novices coming in because they you know, think they know how to do a deal, unfortunately. Um, so... Uh, and then the way that, um, so in terms of regulation, the truth is it is terribly regulated at the moment. And the problem that I have a lot of the time is agents who don't know the regulations have signed the declaration and then are doing a deal will come to me and say, um, I need some help because I didn't know that I had to do it this way or this was going to be the case or I didn't know commission was going to be paid in this fashion or I didn't know I couldn't speak to the club before I spoke to the, whatever else it may be. Because there's detailed regulations, they just haven't read them and don't understand them. But to make, not make things more complicated, the way actually agents get paid in the UK and across Europe is completely backwards to the way that uh, agents are paid in the US. So you'd think that a player pays his agent. I mean, it sounds very straightforward is the truth. But in the UK, the exact opposite happens is that um, in order to incentivize the player to come to the club, I say this slowly because it took me about six times when I started out in the industry to understand that this actually was the case. What ends up happening is that the club pays the agent on the player's behalf as a benefit in kind. I'll just say that again. Club pays the agent rather than the player paying his agent. What happens in that case, which again is another bone of contention, is that just like, I don't know how your tax benefit system work in the US, for example, but what happens then is that that is deemed a benefit in kind payment to the player. So even though the player isn't paying anything to his agent, that is a benefit in kind payment, which means he still has to pay 47% of that commission to the tax authorities. And without question, five or six times a year, I have to deal with a player who has come in and said, I've got this tax bill for £500,000 and I thought the, um, the club what? was paying my agent and why do I have this bill? And it's because the agent never told the player that even though he was being paid by the club, there is still a tax bill to pay as a result. So the agent's response is, well, you would have had to pay me a million pounds. Instead, the club paid the million pounds and you're only paying the tax you on that. Definitely read my book on that right. bit, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're totally right. So it's an expectation management thing, which right. is you either pay me 100% or you pay me 47%. So what I'd suggest well, you is pay you the government for yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. But um, and, and effectively then, what can happen sometimes in um, contract negotiations with the bigger players is you can try and negotiate a gross-up bonus, which is in the two weeks before that payment, tax payment is due, the club will pay the player the exact amount in gross terms that would then be netted against his taxable de deduction in order to then pay the tax authorities so he doesn't quite feel it. But that's not a usual clause. I remember the first time I heard about this financial arrangement, my reaction was, well, in principal agency law in the United States, there's a fiduciary duty and what you describe could potentially raise conflict of interest issues. And how could this be legit? But it's how it, it, it has does. 
It does. It does. There's a, a, def, um, a you know a de facto waiver that the player signs. The truth is, whilst it is in the player's tax interest to sign it, he will sign it. Right. So, can I hear from the audience any questions for our guests today? Somebody must have, be. In, it's in the back over there. Uh, oh. You might have to give some background. Yes, exactly. So, um, and this goes back to actually the um, the financial state of play in the UK, where there are rules governing cost controls in different leagues. So, uh, in the Premier League, there's a thing called um, the Sustainability and Profitability Regulations. In UEFA competition, which is the Champions League, there's the Financial Fair Play Regulations. In the lower leagues, which Berry is in the lower league, I think they were promoted to League One, I think they were for this season. Um, they had what's called um, SCMP regulations, which was a lesser control version of others. So Berry were a club that um, actually went out of business last week, which is relatively unheard of um, in um, English football history on the whole uh, because of serial mismanagement. And a lot of people have said that actually um, it was the league's fault for not being able to control their spiraling costs over a period of time. A lot of other people have said they're actually um, mismanaged by terrible financial own, um, uh, owners over probably about four or five years and they couldn't control those sort of stemming debts. The, the truth is um, there, are, there are different phases of how you actually become an owner in the first place. One's called the owners and directors test, which again is similar to the agent's declaration, which is as long as you're not criminal or haven't been insolvent, on the whole, you can, you can own a team. What is different now I've seen in certain US sports, if a team is in trouble or even if an owner makes some racist remarks, for example, the league has the ability to be able to throw that owner out of the league or take particular measures in order to stabilize the club. It's not the case. Um, in the UK. So what ended up happening at the beginning of the season when Berry owners couldn't demonstrate that they had the financial means to continue until the end of the football season, the league then suspended them from football competition. They said, until you show us your future financial information, you are not playing any matches, which is actually pretty unheard of as well. So they kept on postponing matches and giving the, the victories to the other teams. But they said this is only can go on for so long. So they couldn't provide the future financial information. They kept on hemorrhaging money. And in the end, the league was only left with one decision, which is unless you comply with our deadline by a certain deadline, you are expelled and your membership will basically be revoked. And that's unfortunately what happened. Crazy, right? Question over here. Yeah, so um, in the US, one of the big topics in sports law recently has been gambling has become legal in a lot of states. I believe it was the Supreme Court that said that 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 legal. Um, my understanding is it's, it's, it's been legal in the UK for a while. I know, for example, with a lot of soccer games, soccer matches, um, there's concourse betting or things like that. Mm -hmm. A lot of things that are sort of like a fantasy in US sports. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts from the UK perspective on the legalization of gambling in the United States and what obstacles do a lot of people have to overcome to sort of get on equal? It sounds like a good thesis question, to be fair. <laughs> um, Executive summary <laughs> is I am I'm uncomfortable um, with sports betting in the UK and uncomfortable with um, the ubiquity of it, if that's the right way of saying it. So it is everywhere. It is on shirt sponsors. The majority of EPL and championship shirt sponsors are betting gambling companies. They're all over the billboards. They are all over uh, broadcasting right before game, during halftime, after the game, especially as well for particular things in game, etc. Um, 
there were reports at the beginning of the season that actually the uh, the gambling uh, and betting companies were going to voluntarily not um, uh, advertise in broadcast before games in order to try and reduce the amounts of bets because there is um, and th- there is a gambling epidemic I think um, to some degree in the UK where there's a huge number of real controversial issues going on with people betting too much money. Uh, not being able to, for it to be sustainable. But also, you'll see on a lot of adverts, if you ever come to the UK, there are lots of betting adverts, but at the end it says, please gamble responsibly. And there is a lot more awareness of those type of issues. The flip side of that also, by the way, is when Jodie and I were speaking a few months ago, was there's an inherent issue with the gambling point as well, which is footballers, without realising that they are in breach of their own gambling regulations, because they can't gamble on matches, are actually betting on matches as well football games and some players including an ex-Liverpool player recently were in, got into trouble with betting on matches not necessarily in his competition but in other leagues around the world or where he may have had a potential input in with this particular player he actually told his um, brother to bet on uh, he was about to be transferred to another team and he told him to bet on um, on that event actually happening which obviously is just the equivalent of insider trading, really, more than anything else. Other questions? Yes, in the back, Kat. Yeah, so I know we have to wrap up soon because some students have to get to class. Um, so hopefully we can stick around if you're available for more questions. Um, but a lot of our students are first-year students, so they're just a couple of weeks into law school. Um, maybe you can give them some advice on how to get into the industry and kind of how you got to where you are now. So, and we're going to make this our last question because we are getting to class time. I'm more than happy to stick around afterwards if anyone's around to be able to talk more. Um, the short answer is I, uh, I've always been a massive football soccer fan. So I have an inbuilt weakness for football and for football knowledge is the truth. So back in the day in the 80s where there was no internet or anything, I would just rely on my local newspaper for half a paragraph worth of news about a particular thing. But as the proliferation of more books and more financial um, reporting and soccer and football more generally happened, I just lapped it up. So really my, my thing firstly was how do I find out more about the industry full stop? And the way that I ended up finding more about the industry was through websites like Law and Sport that Jody knows, short, a guy, the, the founder, Sean Cottrell, very well. I, when I started out at Jones Day um, in, in London, I tried to put a plan in place, which was I just tried to read two or three articles a week specifically on sport stuff. I then also at the same time tried to do as much networking as possible, which was go to conferences, uh, speak to people who have written interesting articles in the subject, um, and generally just try and find that balance between networking and building up real sector expertise. Because then what happens is you, you do get a ton of people, and I try and do it the easy, explain the easy way to them that says, oh, Daniel, you know, I want to be a football lawyer. How do, you, how do you go about being a football lawyer? And I Because I love football. And I said, okay, tell me about the five most significant legal issues in football right now. And each of them, the truth is, maybe one out of five will go, actually, I think this, 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 and this. The other four will say, oh, I don't know, but I've still got a real big passion for football. The truth and the distinction there is, is that use that passion for whichever sector it is that you want to work in, sport or entertainment or media or music or whatever, and really delve into the topics within that subject um, subcategory. So if it's the top five most interesting cases that have happened in the last five years, read them. 
If it's the commentary on those cases, read them. If there's a new something which comes out that you actually think might be useful, read them. Because then what happens when you come across industry professionals who don't have as much time as you to be able to read all of these different things, you actually can sometimes add value to their knowledge. And what happens then is you're able then to talk with real um, authority as much as you're able to on very important topics because you've had the time to deep dive into those particular areas. And if you, don't, if you do that, not for one day, not for a week, not for a month, not for a year, not for 10 years. I, I have more or less been a sports lawyer for about seven years now out of a career of 16 years. I was an antitrust lawyer for a long time and then moved into sports, more into sports as I am now. You know, it is the long haul. That's all I can say. There is no magic trick, which actually should give you all confidence is the truth. There's no magic trick and magic formula. It's like dedication year after year, doing the same things, putting the same processes in place, because actually what you'll hear from lots of sports lawyers or music lawyers or whatever it is, and like, how did you get there? It's like, I did it because I loved it. And I loved the process, not the outcome. And the process is doing all of the things to get you there. The outcome is what you see here with me. But you don't want to see me as the guy eight years ago that was bloody reading another article at two o'clock in the morning when I should be in bed and my wife telling me off because I should be in bed and then I'm annoying and grumpy in the morning because I haven't had enough sleep. But that that's ultimately the truth. It's like long-term dedication to the cause. And there's, there's nothing more than that, really. It's like, how do you keep that focus for a decent period of time to start getting you along the path. Well, I love being vindicated in the advice I give students, which I call, I sum up what you've just said as current awareness. Stay fluent in the area in which you're interested in practicing no more than the people around you. So meanwhile, thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you all for being here today. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share, and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi million pound transfers, and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally, and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.